It's a common experience when you're a new parent. A stranger in a supermarket comes up and mistakes your precious little girl bundle for a boy bundle, just like totally overlooking the fact they're quite clearly wearing booties with a subtle pink trim. But where did this widespread association of blue for boys and pink for girls actually come from? It's a question listener LV left on the Every Little Thing helpline, and it sends host Flora Lichtman down a rabbit hole of discovery. As Every Little Thing does every episode, it tries to answer a listener question. Recent shows have looked at the origins of cheerleading, duct tape, trousers, and what that distinctive smell in op shops actually is. Meanwhile, the show's also been running a campaign to have the Flamingo adopted as the mascot of a professional sports team. But back to Pink and Blue, and it turns out it's actually a fairly recent thing. For a long time, until the 1890s or thereabouts, boys and girls both wore white dresses, looked identical, and were described using gender-neutral pronouns like baby or it. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, when parents are starting to take their boys out of dresses at two or three rather than six or seven, America is going through some big societal changes. Mm -hmm. And these big changes may help explain the little one we're interested in. So I want to tell you about three. First, urbanization. In the late 1800s, droves of people were moving off the farm and into cities. One of the pieces of fallout of industrialization and urbanization is that people perceived that they were losing something by losing their connection to the rural agricultural lifestyle. Hannah says that for men, that meant losing a connection, I'm paraphrasing, to their garden of manliness. You're out on the farm and it's an honest day's labor and a man can be a real man, you know, when he's chopping down trees and, you know, shoveling pig poop or whatever. So they come into the city and suddenly they're not outside all day. They're indoors. And the perception was that people who worked in cities are getting soft. Crisis of masculinity, that's number one, Z. <laughs> Here comes terrible, too. Homophobia is really coming into its own during this period, especially for men. The crisis of masculinity and the fear of homosexuality are really, you know, two sides of the same coin. They're both about this um, fear that men are not adequately manly. And if men are not adequately manly, then what are they? Yeah. In fact, the terms homosexual and heterosexual are coined just a few decades before, in the 1860s. And along with these labels comes the idea that being attracted to the same sex is a mental disorder, one that's possibly preventable. There comes to be this social uh, awareness that proper manhood is not something that just magically happens. It's something that you have to cultivate. Huh. Okay. Into this stew of homophobia and masculinity concerns come brand new fields of study around the mind, psychology and psychoanalysis. And practitioners, like Freud, warn parents that babyhood matters. They're like, babies aren't just poop machines you feed and burp. You can mess them up. There is a newfound concern with this notion of parenting and that parenting is a job that you need to do correctly. Um, and that's really where the concern with this proper gender formation comes, that they play the right games that they, you know, go to the right schools, that they learn the right subjects, that they have the right hobbies. And that they wear the right clothes. Mm. So here are the threads. 
First, you have a society worrying about manhood and sexuality. On top of that, you have psychologists saying how you treat your baby matters. And then all of a sudden, people start caring about what their babies are wearing because they're told that if they get it wrong, their boys won't turn out right. So it wasn't really just one thing, but it was kind of like a few things that contribute to this labeling. Yeah, you might say that they're the crisscrossing underground tubes of a prairie dog village that lead us to your tube. Yes, to my YouTube, my YouTube channel. Well, at least to the pink and blue tube. Yeah. How did pink and blue become a shorthand for gender? Let's get back into that non-metaphorical closet with our fashion historian, Joe Paoletti. She said pink and blue didn't start out masculine and feminine. Pink and blue, the pastel form of blue, uh, those were considered kind of youthful colors. So a young girl might wear those colors or a a young boy. Until the early 1900s. That's when pink and blue start to be used to signify gender. And you see it on baby announcement cards, baby blankets, clothing. But there's a wrinkle to the pink and blue rollout. And what is this wrinkle? Sometimes it's pink for boys and sometimes it's pink for girls. Wait, that's crazy. Let me show you this advice column from 1923. Um, okay. Um, oh, okay. Dear... Helen Brooks. She says, I have always been under the impression that pink is the color used for the printed announcement for the baby boy and blue for the baby girl. The columnist responded by saying, there is no agreement about which color goes with which gender. All over the country, it's all different. Depending on where you shopped, it would be pink for boys or pink for girls. Huh. It got to the point where national magazines were investigating the question. There was an article from Time magazine in, I think it was 1927, the Queen of Belgium was having a baby and they were decorating the nursery in pink in anticipation of an heir. The boy was getting the pink treatment. And apparently that set hair on fire in the Times office. So they got reporters to call all across the country to department stores saying, is it pink for boys or pink for girls? And all over the country, it's all different. That's how it was in the 1920s. By the 1950s, it was basically settled. Pink is for girls, blue is for boys. But who came up with, like, because you want your kid to be masculine, make sure his clothing has blue? I wish we could say who or what is exactly responsible for this shift. But we don't have, like, a single Tim Gunn figure telling parents how to dress their kids. So here are the theories. One theory has to do with an art sale in the 1920s. This American railroad baron bought two really expensive paintings. One was of a boy wearing blue, and the other was of a girl wearing pink. The sale was highly publicized. A quote in the New York Times compared it to buying the Mona Lisa. So that might have something to do with it. Another theory ties the Mother Goose jingle, Little Boy Blue, to the rise of blue as a masculine color. Okay. Some say it was First Lady Mamie Eisenhower's love of pink that cemented it as a girl's color. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, people always look up to, like, the First Lady and, like, what she's wearing and all that. Exactly. Makes sense. Department stores, too, had a vested interest in settling this debate. They see it as a way to sell things. If you want to sell lots of stuff, you can't give them hand-me-downs. You can't give them things that can be reused from child to child. 
So there's a real interest in pinkifying things in order to make it less usable. If somebody has another child later on, they're going to have to buy new things for the boy because the boy can't possibly have all the pink things. Pink and blue is all about the green. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Money. And this commercial strategy works. By the 1980s, pink isn't just a color for girls. It's only for girls. It's such a strong symbol of femininity that it is toxic to boys. They can't possibly ride their big sister's worn-out bicycle because it's pink. Which is nuts, considering that only a few decades earlier, the whole country was split on whether pink was for girls or pink was for boys. What the history tells us is that it could have easily gone the other way. Flora Lichtman, the host of Every Little Thing from Gimlet Media, and an episode called Pink for Girls, Blue for Boys. Why? And the show's also made by Annette Heist and Phoebe Flanagan. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're enjoying the show and it's helping you find new stuff to listen to, then please tell other people about us. Maybe mention it to a friend or a family member. And do please rate and review us on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. Not only does this help other people find us, but it also lets me know if I'm on the right track with the number of clips. Do you want some fewer stories, longer interviews? Just let me know about it. And I'm also really interested in finding out how people want me to podcast and publish stuff online. At the moment, I release the whole show in one chunk and also in shorter slices of individual shows too. But if this is just a pain and it's easier to just get everything in one program, you don't have to fiddle around with and curate, just say the word and it shall be done. Thank you. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.